0: Bookworm Games episode 31 your spirit will go with the robot. Welcome back. This is Wesley Schantz. As Ryan suggested in our talk last week, I went ahead and made a Bookworm Games Twitch account. Between that and the blogs and Facebook and Twitter and the fact that most people for all I know who are listening have my phone number and email anyway, I hope I can put together a final episode That will involve some audience participation with plenty of question and answer time included. That will be episode 33, a nice dantesque number to end on, and conversation 8, a good soundstone number. And so that'll be in a couple of weeks on Sunday, September 16th, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern time, streaming on twitch.tv, the Bookworm Games channel and then it'll be recorded on Anchor for those who can't make it live. But I do hope you'll send in questions and comments, either then or beforehand if possible, so that I don't end up just talking to myself. Today, we pick up from where Ness has been doing just that, talking to himself deep in the Sea of Eden and telling himself where to go next. Now, at the end of the game, to Saturn Valley. And the game confirms it, parenthetically, in case there was any doubt Ness really heard his own voice, and it doubles down on this by teleporting the party straight there with Ness's newly unlocked Psi Teleport Beta, much as at the conclusion of the strange clear dream of Pooh in Dalam he teleported along to join his friends on the beach in Summers. In that self talk which the player overhears, The player is placed in the position of Ness when he overheard his parents talking beside his cradle. In this moment, he rises from his deep, death-like sleep and, like the phoenix, is reborn beside the fire spring. His friends, too, heard him say something in one of the few interactions we see between them. And all of these deal with an impasse and a party member joining. In this case, it's Ness himself. They say... What happened, Ness? You've been unconscious a long time. You kept saying something. Saturn Valley? What's waiting for us there? Anyway, we need to teleport. And after overcoming his nightmare, Ness also reminded himself and us of the threat Gigas poses, but also of the confident expectation he has of victory. Everything in the universe could be destroyed at the hands of Gigas but he and his followers are also in trouble. The Apple of Enlightenment has foretold that Giga's attempt will fail. It is because of the existence of a boy named Ness. That's me. And in the final episode, we will discuss the Apple of Enlightenment at long last, as it deserves. Now, decelerating from a teleport to a run to a walk in Saturn Valley, the friends find themselves like Prince Pooh, crashing a party that looks to be well underway. This party is a dream team of brilliant creators, comprised of Dr. Andonuts, Apple Kid, the Desert Miner, and Mr. Saturn. Like the once shy man of few words in the library, or like Picky and Tracy and my fanfic, or like the Runaway Five. All of these imaginatively fill in from what we've seen of the characters gathered in Saturn Valley, something about the adventures that they have been having while Ness and his friends have been visiting your sanctuaries. They were brought together not by Ness and Paula's psychic summons, but by being kidnapped and held in the bowels of the Starmen's Stonehenge base. Since then, they have collaborated on the phase distorter, the theoretical project of Dr. Andonuts and Apple Kid now coming to fruition thanks to the technical prowess of Mr. Saturn, in whose honor the device has been shaped, or perhaps there's something in the shape of Mr. Saturn, essentially a walking head, which is inherently adept at breaking the bonds of space and time, and so any honor is incidental. As for what the minor character might be doing here, I have been giving it some thought, and I believe the answer might be another breaking of the fourth wall, illuminated by Clyde Mandolin in his Legends of Localization book. One clue is that building on the outskirts of Foresight, where the sign says that they're planning for Earthbound 2 inside. And then we heard how the stress of his job was giving the miner ulcers. So my theory is that he like Liar Exaggerate, the treasure hunter, and like Brick Road, the dungeon man, is another stand-in for Itoi himself. Maybe he's a programmer who's gone out to the desert to escape from the stress of creating the game. Now, a story that's told in Mandolin's book lends the connection a bit more substance. So, Shigesato Itoi's Gold Mining Adventure. Itoi became especially well-known in the early 1990s when he searched for legendary buried gold on national TV. According to Japanese legend, a large amount of gold was stolen from the capital and hidden just before the ruling government fell to opposition forces in 1868. Although it's difficult to calculate what it would be worth now, conservative estimates suggest it was at least the equivalent of a 100 million U.S. dollars today. Treasure hunters, relying on clues and historical artifacts, have tried to locate the gold for the past 150 years. Based on new information, Itoi became convinced that the gold was buried at Mount Akagi in central Japan. There he famously declared, It exists, I just know it. Together with a team of construction experts, historians, and even psychics, he dug deep holes into the mountainside with heavy machinery. Although many tunnels and items from the mid-1800s were discovered, no gold was ever found. Despite the setback, Itoi remained convinced. Eventually, though, he publicly admitted defeat and humorously stated that he had produced the one and only civil engineering show in the world. The entire event was notable enough that several Japanese books were written about it, and Itoi himself included a similar gold mine adventure in Mother 2. The hunt for the hidden gold continues to this day. In fact... One family has been searching for it for three generations. On the next page, there's an image from the game, but also of Itoi, I guess it's him, someone wearing the mother to coming soon uh, sweatshirt um, and wearing a hard hat and looking uh, heroically up a hole. Itoi, the caption says, used the television coverage to cleverly promote Mother 2. Sadly, he says he threw away this historic jacket long ago. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. Anyway, that's on page 208 in Legends of Localization. Great, great book. Highly recommend. Anyway, so here's the miner to help with the construction of the machine that can travel through space-time. And find the lost gold. As it happens, the phase, the first phase distorter, had already been stolen by Pokey and transported him, and a kidnapped Mister Saturn, to the lost underworld. By the time you arrive in Saturn Valley, and the lost underworld is where this second phase distorter is sensing the presence of the enemy. If you're remembering that cave where a bit of broken technology was visible across the abyss, and then maybe that broken helicopter in deep darkness, and you're starting to put the pieces together, I think you're on the right track. It seems that we should have been prepared for this latest betrayal, despite Ness's attempts to understand Pokey through his avatar and Magicant. But there is some evidence that supports Ness's sympathy, too. You can't leave out the broken Skyrunner either in Threed or later in Summers. It surely attests to Ness and his friend's ability to take and destroy Dr. Andonut's creations as well. However, noble their intentions. The results are akin, and in a funny twist, now, when you go to operate the face distorter Mark II to pursue Pokey, it first spits you out burned to a crisp just as whenever a triad teleportation runs into a wall or some other obstacle. It seems there has been a less-than-groovy distortion of space-time this time, but Dr. Andonitz believes he can get the device working properly with the addition of a rare element extracted from an extraterrestrial substrate. Have you seen any meteorites lately? he asks. So, rather than teleporting with the phase distorter right after the speedy Pokey, and chasing him on to a place and time you've never trodden, your feet instead take you, via your own teleportation sigh, back to the town where it all began, to Onet, Ness's hometown and Pokey's too. Is it as he says in Magicant, and as Ness says to himself, speaking through Pokey there perhaps, he has had no luck. He has been born one house over into a family, the reverse of the love and harmony that Nessus wrapped him in from infancy. Or isn't it that Poki's choices have led him step by step to this final act of theft and destruction and cowardice? As the A-Team warns you, Gigas has bent all his armed forces on the once peaceful suburb, hoping to prevent the heroes accessing a chunk of the burning space rock and taking it back to the scientists for universe-saving applied research. As long as Phase Distorter 2 is incomplete, the future BuzzBuzz Buzz had traveled back from will remain unchanged. GIGAS' open conquest of Onet is even the first overt sign of it, perhaps, hearkening back as it does to the title screen with UFOs brandishing lasers and gas stations going kaboom. This is not the Onet of the cheerful bouncy town theme, or even of the wonder and unbounded possibility of the night the meteorite fell. Though it is dark as night, this dark Onet is breathless with the throbbing beat of Stonehenge and fire springs coursing through it. It is empty downtown, and all the doors are shut, no matter how annoyingly you try knocking. Even the sharks are barricaded in their arcade. Even Frank is not strolling in his yard, and the cops' flashing lights and famous roadblocks are nowhere in evidence. Even your bit of beachfront property is barred to you, though you should theoretically have the way in, especially because the back wall was missing anyway. Even the way to Giant Step, your sanctuary, the first, is closed, and also the secret tree house around the corner from it, whose top you could see from the ridge among the treetops back on that first mysterious night. There is only one door open to you, and it is your home. When perhaps you began to doubt yourself and despair, darkly wondering if this place of all places would not receive you, Ness and his friends are let into the living room. It is to put you in the position Pokey was in that fateful night when he thought his little brother was lost and he pounded on the door of the one friend he might have. If he was motivated then mostly by fear of the reaction of his parents when they found out, to the point that cowardly as Pokey is, he would accompany Ness and King through the search, we can still see some brotherly care operating there. Pokey, unlike Cain, at least recognized that he is his brother's keeper. The living room is now dark as it never has been before. Even that night your mom had the lights lit cheerfully, and even in your memory vision when you were last in this place, the black and white home seemed to glow with a dreamy radiance. Ness's mom says she is glad you've arrived. Her plan is to stay quiet in the dark not a bad one now that Ness and his friends are here and she can feed them endless supplies of steak. But upstairs, Tracy has her room lit as normal and continues to support you with the same slightly ditzy eagerness as ever. And your dog adorably comments, at this point, you guys just might be the strongest force in the world, don't you think? At this point in the game, with the return home at long last, only to find it greatly changed, I got a little bit of a return of the king vibe when the hobbits come into the shire. And I'll just read a bit from there. The travelers trotted on, and as the sun began to sink towards the white downs far away on the western horizon, they came to bywater by its wide pool. And there they had their first really painful shock. This was Frodo and Sam's own country and they found out now that they cared about it more than any other place in the world. Many of the houses that they had known were missing. Some seemed to have been burned down. The pleasant row of old hobbit holes in the bank on the north side of the pool were deserted, and their little gardens that used to run down right to the water's edge were rank with weeds. Worse... There was a whole line of the ugly new houses all along poolside where the Hobbiton Road ran close to the bank. An avenue of trees had stood there. They were all gone. And looking with dismay up the road towards Bag End, they saw a tall chimney of brick in the distance. It was pouring out black smoke into the evening air. That's it. Pages 349, 350, the scouring of the Shire chapter in my paperback. Since that happens after Sauron is defeated, though, and this all happens before you go fight Gigas within the chronology of the adventure, that is, setting aside the time travel aspect. For all that, the parallel could be closer, and as we'll see in the final episode, there are still some things you can do after defeating Gigas, but scouring the Onet is not among them. Incidentally, if you want more Tolkien, I know that was a short passage, and it's hard to read much from it without giving a bunch more context. If you want more Tolkien, Dr. Olson is broadcasting weekly from within Lord of the Rings online. He's reading through the the series with the utmost attention to detail, and is on pace to get to The Return of the King in about a decade or so. I've also got this year's Hobbit Camp videos up on the Signum Academy YouTube channel. That's 10 solid hours and maybe about that many views. I'm sure I will say more about Tolkien in connection with Philip Pullman's great fantasy series, but for now, there's still more epic literature that I'd like to share. Here is another partial parallel that I came across. I thought of it apropos of the fate, faithful, sorry, the faithful dog, your dog King and this dog. Now, as these two were conversing thus with each other, A dog, who was lying there, raised his head and ears. This was Argos, patient-hearted Odysseus's dog, whom he himself raised, but got no joy of him, since before that he went to sacred Ilion. In the days before, the young men had taken him out to follow goats of the wild, and deer, and rabbits. But now he had been put aside, with his master absent, and lay on the deep pile of dung, from the mules and oxen, which lay abundant before the gates, so that the servants of Odysseus could take it to his great estate for manuring. There lay the dog Argos, all in the dung, all covered with dog ticks. Now, as he perceived that Odysseus had come close to him, he wagged his tail and laid both his ears back, only he now no longer had the strength to move any closer to his master, who watching him from a distance, without Eumaeus noticing, secretly wiped a tear away, and said to him, Eumaeus, this is amazing, this dog that lies on the dunghill. The shape of him is splendid, and yet I cannot be certain whether he had the running speed to go with this beauty, or is just one of the kind of table dog that gentlemen keep. And It is only for show that their masters care for them. Then, O swineherd Eumaeus, you said to him in answer, This, it is too true, is the dog of a man who perished far away. If he were such in build and performance as when Odysseus left him behind, when he went to Ilion, soon you could see his speed and his strength for yourself. Never could any wild animal in the profound depths of the forest escape once he pursued. He was very clever at tracking, but now he is in bad times. His master far from his country has perished, and the women are careless and do not look after him. And serving men, when their masters are no longer about to make them work, are no longer willing to do their rightful duties. For Zeus, of the wide brows, takes away one half of the virtue from a man once the day of slavery closes upon him. So he spoke and went into the strongly settled palace, and strode straight on to the great hall and the haughty suitors. But the doom of dark death now closed over the dog Argos, when, after nineteen years had gone by, he had seen Odysseus. As in the Odyssey, Lattimore's translation, uh, book 17, lines 281 uh, to 327. <clears throat> Outside Ness's house, the enemy starts to appear beyond the neighboring houses, along the path leading up to the hilltop, just about where the Starman Jr. materialized to challenge Buzbos. Buzz. Now, ghosts of Starman flit in droves, far more powerful and somehow wicked in death than in life. They take turns casting storm and grinning, while the Octobots will steal Psy Caramels and the Evil Eyes will diamondize you with a glare. If you're quick enough, you can use the enemy's dense massing to your advantage and dash from battle to battle, sneaking up behind them and scoring some green swirlies. As ever, if your levels are low, you can move cautiously at the edges of the screen until the coast is clear, but on the narrow path, this can leave you trapped between groups of foes above and below. A better strategy... To level up while home cooking is so close, you'll have a similar chance again soon, in the cave of the past. But it will be against still more powerful enemies, and the surroundings won't be nearly as homelike and agreeable. Gradually, you make your way, then up the path, picking up meteorites dropped by the evil eyes and octobots. And if you're lucky, lucky as the magic can't pokey says. Perhaps you'll pick up a goddess ribbon from the ghost of Starman. Tough as the random encounters are, there's no boss in this section of the game which would correspond to Starman Jr. Getting the meteorite piece proves to be a little anticlimactic. And putting this together with your inability to revisit Liar or Frank, or Captain Strong, or any of the other people in Onet outside Ness's house to see what they've been up to when it's darkest before the dawn... I think there are some missed opportunities here. I can only assume that Itoi and his team were a bit rushed to complete the game. I could be wrong, though. They could have been hoping to keep the player moving quickly and not get sidetracked, now that the end is all but in sight. All the same, fighting a boss on the hilltop in which the townspeople would come to the rescue like the Runaway Five did against the clumsy robot in the Monotoli building, that would have been pretty cool. In Saturn Valley, again, once you teleport back there, if you take the time to walk around and chat with the Mr. Saturns, many of them will have some new dialogue. And frankly, even the old dialogue is worth hearing again. A couple of famous lines from the game appear here. They have to do with Daddy and Dakota. These are apparently a whiffed translation of the phrase, Invention is the Daddy of Necessity, and a localization substitute for Itoi's home prefecture of Gunmaken, in the middle of Japan. The Saturn that's atop the ladder now says, Dance is over. And apparently that translates what's a palindrome in Japanese, the dance is over. Um, You can't redo the coffee break, even if you agree or talk to that Mr. Saturn again. But... Instead, you are required to take a nap at the Mr. Saturn Hotel while Dr. Andonuts extracts the meteorite sexonite that's what it's called and works on the machine presumably to ensure you save the game before proceeding. And again, here I think there would have been a really cool opportunity to throw in another dream sequence or this, the, the cascading words um, spoken by uh, in the coffee and tea breaks. And as Dr. Donuts warns you, you're on the threshold of the final chapter now. Once you warp in with the finished phase distorter, there is no way to go back and explore any other places in the game until you defeat Gigas, or else if you quit and start a new game. I take this to be a way of understanding that dance is over line. Now, on setting foot on the far side of the abyss in the cave of the past, you're rewarded for your devotion with a visit from the star master. Pooh's teacher bestows star-storm omega, a still more powerful way to shake the stars, and a major bargain at only 42 pp. To emphasize that this is the point of no return. Dr. Andonuts reveals that traveling beyond the spiky tendril into the past will mean leaving your physical bodies behind, trading them for full embodiment in robotic shells. Except... Except for the baseball cap which Nessus sprite has been wearing even long after you upgraded up to better equipment, to souvenir coins with defensive and lucky charms upon them, this cap his robot form will continue to wear into the past. Writing into robotic bodies the contents of minds and personalities, even spirits, since the human body could not survive the journey against the flow of time, Isn't this like what Buzz Buzz meant by his cryptic greeting, a bee, I am not? And does it perhaps work the same way for the star men, though they didn't travel on the meteorite exactly the way Buzz Buzz seems to have done? Could the star men too have had human forms in their present, your future, which they and perhaps Buzz Buzz, sacrificed in order to pursue him into their past, your present. Only now, the present is not their past, but the present which will change their future. And, if what Talarama and the Talking Rock has said is true, it will change all futures, once Ness, in turn, follows Poki's trail into the past, where Gigas lies in wait. The way the players guide puts it is a bit more lighthearted. It says Saturn Valley Time Tours, the ultimate travel experience is available now in the Saturn Valley. Travel back in history. Visit the ancient Greeks or Egyptians or Mayans. Ride a mammoth in the Pleistocene or hunt a raptor in the Cretaceous. Carve your face on the Sphinx. Special introductory offer, 3 days, 2 nights, $338. Watch George Washington sleep. Dine on Asp with Cleopatra. Listen to Confucius. Not responsible for paradoxes or the destruction of the space-time continuum. And the disclaimer could go on to say, uh, of course, you can do none of these things. And it could suggest that you play Chrono Trigger for more options. It's a curious shift that in this game which has focused so much on Ness's sense memories and his bond with the earth, that you reach the final battle, that in order to reach the final battle, his body must be left behind. And to do so, he depends on a substance not of this world to travel back in time. But it is yet another take, perhaps, on that central vision where he was disembodied And returned to a crucial past moment. Again, the return to the meteorite itself prefigures in a way how you essentially rehash the opening prelude of the game where Buzz Buzz traveled back into the past. Now, Ness will go on accompanied by his friends on the final leg of their adventure with perfect clarity about the goal for all the muddles about the time travel. And we too will robot up and go with them to reach that goal next time. Again, that'll be the second to last episode in the series. And please send in your questions and try to join us live for the very last episode in this series of Bookworm Games. That's September 16th, Sunday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 Eastern, if you're able. Thanks again for listening. Take care.